Well, this morning we're continuing in our fully equipped series, um, and we're talking about this series as we do every January. About hope, we talk about some of the things in our walk with God in the Christian faith that we want to be consistent about, and we want to kind of at the start of the year make sure that we're on the right track with kind of a checkup at the beginning of each year. Uh, so a couple weeks ago we talked about Bible reading. Last week Pastor Marvin talked about prayer. And, uh, and this week, I get the opportunity to talk to you about money. I'll close my eyes while you get up and bleed. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, money's an important topic, and I don't mind talking about it because uh, it's important to us. I say we, don't, we talk about money and not hope because we care about your heart and your soul. Uh, I put it this way. We don't uh, talk about your soul because we care about your money. We talk about money because we care about your soul as often as we do that because so money is something that affects and has an intricate tie to our heart, to our desires. Uh, inside the church, outside the church, you can see people's hearts, desires, emotions get tied up in money. It's an important topic and we talk about important topics and God's word talks about important topics. And it's one of those things that at the beginning of a year, we want to make sure we are in a right relationship with. And so I want to focus this morning's message around this question. And the question is this, what story do you want your money to tell about your life? It's actually a question I get from Dave Ramsey, who's a kind of a financial uh, advisor type thing. He's got a radio show, pretty successful. He asked this question in one of his books. What story do you want your money to tell about your life? Because the truth is, no matter how much or how little you have, how you deal with money, how you relate to money, how you handle money is going to tell a story about your life. And this isn't just about rich people that consider this question. It's about all of us. How, what you do with money tells a story about your life. As an example, you think about uh, Christmas not too long past, and some of you may have watched or read A Christmas Carol by Dickens. And if you think about the Dickens story and Ebenezer Scrooge, at the beginning of the story, it's all about, right at the beginning, how he relates the story being told by how he relates to money, right? So you get a couple people come in, Mr. Scrooge, you know, donation for the poor, you know, and now I'm not giving anything to them. You know, can uh, Bob Cratchit put another piece of coal in the fire? No, it's warm enough in here. And can I get tomorrow off? It's Christmas. You know, reluctantly he gives it, but you better be early the next day after. And then at the end of the story, we see it different, right? So Scrooge, all of a sudden, he's giving donations to charity. He's, you know, bringing a turkey over to Bob Cratchit's house. He's, he's, you know, sharing his wealth. Two different stories being told by how he deals with money. Two different stories being told by how he deals with money. Stories are told by how we deal with money. And what do you want your story to be? Uh, stories are told so maybe more recently, and a less fictitious example. I heard about uh, recently that actually took place about five years ago. It has to do with uh, someone you may have heard of, George Clooney, uh, actor. Uh, you may have heard of him or not, but uh, pretty, pretty successful actor. And I don't know much about George Clooney and his lifestyle, uh, you know, and things like that. I don't know much about how he handles money, but I heard this story, and it kind of told me a little bit about his story. He had 
uh, 14 of his friends over back in 2013. And uh, they, he has these group of friends that he gets together every now and then. And, and uh, he said back in 2013, he gave them a date in September. I don't remember what the exact date was. But he said, be at my house this day, September 2013. The boys are getting together. That's what he calls them, 14. We're getting the boys together at my house. And all 14 of these guys show up. And the table's set and prepared, and uh, they're expecting them. And beside each one of the 14 place settings is a black suitcase. That's beside each one of the place settings. And they eat dinner, and George uh, basically talks and, and shares about, you know, thanking them, how each of them have played a role in helping him get to where he's gotten to. Since some of you, you know, I slept on your couch when I first came to California or whatever, and, and you helped me, you gave me my start, and I just want to thank you for the role that you have had in my life. And now, you know, would you open up, you know, the suitcase that, that you have there? Each of them opened up those suitcases. Each of them contained $1 million in cash in $20 bills. Wow. Um, and then uh, Coney continued to say, I have, uh, beyond that, I have already paid the taxes for you on this million dollars, and I've paid off the mortgage on your houses. Um, so this million dollars is yours, free and clear. Um, and I, again, I don't know George Clooney. I'm not a friend of George Clooney. I kind of want to be now. <laughs> but it tells me something about it. It's part of his story. His relationship with money, part of his story, right? Heard another story this week about the other end of the scale, not an actor in Hollywood, but a janitor. Janitor in Brattleboro, Vermont, uh, in early 90s, I think 93, died recently. And uh, most stories about janitors that uh, die in Brattleboro, New York, uh, Vermont, in 93, you don't hear about. So there must be something unique about them, and there was. <clears throat> and this gentleman had worked as a janitor all his life. And, um, he had every morning for breakfast, he'd go down to the local hospital, eat at the hospital cafeteria, <clears throat> and have an English muffin with peanut butter on it. <clears throat> Excuse me. And um, he'd just have that his breakfast every day. He'd go to the hospital, then he'd go to work and do his job. He'd uh, get paid, save his check, and he made a couple investments apparently along the way. Because when he died just recently, at the age of 93, he left to that hospital $4.3 million that nobody knew he had because he drove around his raggedy old car and wore his raggedy old clothes, chopped his own firewood, and then he also left a million dollars to the local library and uh, was a multi-millionaire. His own family didn't know it. Wow. And what an interesting story, right? And most of us probably don't have millions, <clears throat> but it doesn't matter. How you deal with money how I deal with money is going to tell a story about our lives. Is going to tell a story about our lives. You don't have to be rich to consider this question. You don't have to be older to consider this question. Maybe you're a teenager in here. How you handle money as a teenager is going to tell a story about who you are, what you do, what you believe in, what you value. If you're a Christian in here, then how you and I deal with money is going to say something not only about you, but about God and about what you believe about God. You don't have to be rich to consider this question because we've all known people who are not rich, not well off. You can spend your whole life working, making minimum wage the whole time and be an extremely generous person. You can spend your whole life working and amassing millions and be an extremely selfish person. 
It's not about the amount, it's not about the resources, but it is a story that's being told. And the passage we're going to look at this morning is in Luke chapter 12. Apparently in the first service I said Romans at some point, and it very much confused people. And I can see why it would, because we're not in Romans. Um, this comes out of Luke chapter 12. <clears throat> I'm going to look at three different stories that could be told through your relationship with money. It's my relationship with money. Three different stories that could be told with how you and I handle and relate to money. Luke chapter 12. I'm going to read it. If you don't have your Bible with you, uh, it's in front of you, behind you, or around you. You should be able to grab one. I'm not going to put the whole thing on the screen for you this morning. I'm going to read it so you can just sit and listen to me. Uh, read it, or you can follow along as you turn to Luke chapter 12 in the scriptures. Here's what God's word has to say, uh, beginning in verse 13. <clears throat> Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, and this is Jesus, but he said to him, Man, who made me judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying this, The land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool. This night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. There's an old proverb that says a fool and his money are soon parted. It perhaps has happened no quicker than it does in this story. A fool and his money were parted that day and that night, according to this parable. As you listen to this parable, as you read it, what's most interesting to me, or as I, and as I read it this week and pondered over it, what's most interesting to me is also pretty scary to me uh, as I read this parable. And it's just this, that when I think about it, what scares me is how much sense the man's actions make to me. I think about it. He came into an unexpected amount of wealth. He came into a bumper crop in their uh, you know, context, but he came into unexpected wealth that came his way. He didn't expect it. And so what does he do? What would you do? Well, what he did is he found a way to accommodate it. So, wow, you know, I have this unexpected wealth. This is going to be great because not only will I be provided for today, I can provide for my future. I can save it and provide for my future. I can have it. It'll provide for tomorrow. It'll, it'll, it'll be there. This is a prudent thing to do, to save and to plan. And that's exactly what he said. I'm going to tear down my barns. I'm going to build bigger barns. And I'm going to be able to accommodate it, save it, and be provided for his immediate and maybe long-term future is taken care of, 
he's secure and taken care of for the rest of his life and can focus on other things, not the least of which is not working and enjoying life. And here's what scares me about this. Isn't this what often our world and Americans often aspire to? Isn't this the American dream? That you would be able to get enough money either through earning it or come into it through a windfall that you no longer have to work and that you are provided for not only today but for the future. Isn't this why a few weeks ago so many people and so many news stories came about because Powerball jackpot went up to half a billion dollars? Apparently a quarter of a billion is not enough to really get people motivated to go up. But half a billion, it's in the news, people are out there buying their tickets. Why? Why? And because often they'd ask him, you know, what are you going to do if you win? I'm going to quit my job. The first thing that's often said, or the wires say, I'm going to keep working. But the, most of them say, I'm going to quit my job. Right? And, and they say, hey, why? This, this, is what, this is what often our world aspires to. You can, if you come into an amount of money, you no longer have to work, you're provided for, you can sit back, eat, drink, be merry, and relax. And what scares me so much or frightens me so much about this parable is because that seems to make sense in our world exactly what this man does. It seems prudent, it seems wise, but it doesn't end well for this man. Jesus is using this as a negative example, and God calls the man a fool. If the man is a fool, that it bothers me that I am not more bothered by the actions he takes. Because I look at the actions he takes and they not only seem to make sense, but they seem prudent. Well, he's providing for the future. He's saving. He's putting a rainy day fund together. Or I guess if you're a farmer, a non-rainy day fund together. A rain less day fund uh, <laughs> together. So... What's going on? I think it's important then to take a look at why is this man a fool? What's, what's going on in this case? What's the story that this man's money is telling? If we take a closer look, the man is, can't be a fool simply because he's rich. Because we see in other places in Scripture that God blesses people with wealth, that wealth and wisdom is not incompatible. So it can't be just because he's rich he's a fool. And it's not in the way that he came by the, 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 the wealth says he's, his land produced plentiful crops. Wasn't immoral, wasn't illegal, didn't steal it. He came by it in a moral way. So it's not the fact that he is rich. It's not how he made the money or how he got the money that makes him a fool. So if it's not either of those, it must be something else. It's how he handles, I think the, the bottom line is it's how he handles discretionary income that has come his way and how he views it. The view of he takes towards income that has come his way that is above and beyond what he needs. And we know it's above and beyond what he needs. Because even though he says he has a crop and I've got nowhere to put it, that's not true, right? Because he knocks down barns. He has barns to put crops in. He just doesn't have big enough barns to put crops in. So he has his needs for daily life. We're talking about discretionary income. 
and what to do with discretionary income. And so what makes them a fool? I think the answer comes if we look a little closer at the language in verses 17 through 19. When I come to them, say the yellow words with me. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. It's the way that he views the money and what he chooses to do with it that makes him a fool. His language betrays him. That his view of his wealth is that it is his. It belongs to him. And it is for him and him alone to benefit from and to enjoy. And out of that view, he chooses a course to keep the wealth for himself, saying, I will relax, eat, drink, and be merry with no thought to what God would have him do for the money, with no thought to other people's needs around him. It is simply for him. And for this reason, God calls him a fool. And this is a story of a greedy fool. Your money can tell the story of being a greedy fool. The attitude evidenced in these actions results in a foolish story of greed. The point is that when we view discretionary money as ours to be kept and spent on with no thought about God's purposes and other people, the way that we handle money then tells a story of a greedy fool. Doesn't, you don't have to be rich to be greedy. Don't mistake that. And you don't have to be greedy to get rich. That's not what Jesus is saying here. Truth is, you can have any amount, great amount of money or less, uh, a very small amount of money and still be greedy. Uh, many years ago, a major American company had trouble keeping its employees working in their assembly plant in Panama. The laborers lived in a generally agrarian <coughs> barter economy. But the company paid them in cash. Since the average employee had more cash after a week's work than he had ever seen, he would periodically quit working, satisfied with what he had. So the company's in a dilemma. What are they going to do about this? How do they get their workers to stop quitting after a week of work when they get this cash? Well, they came up with a very simple and inexpensive solution. The company executives gave all their employees a Sears catalog. No one quit then because they all wanted what was previously undreamed of things that they saw in that book. You don't have to be rich to be greedy. You can make very little money and still be controlled by greed. The point is, what do you do? The point of this story, the way our money can tell the story of a greedy fool depends a lot on what we do with our discretionary income. Today, CNBC, just this morning, ran a story uh, about uh, another actor, Nicholas Cage, who was once worth $150 million. And the reason it's a story today is because now he's uh, being foreclosed on in his homes and um, it owes the government millions of dollars in taxes. Um, and uh, 
So the story was, well, what do you spend? I had to pay both their $150 million. You know, most of us would be like, how would you possibly even spend that? So the Chronicles, what do you spend? You know, 15 properties he owns, uh, a personal island down in the Bahamas, two castles in Europe, uh, $15 million uh, house in Newport, uh, Newport, Rhode Island, and a mansion down in New Orleans, uh, a pet octopus. I don't know if I buy a feed an octopus, but. Apparently it's expensive. The first Superman comic, bought that. Uh, and uh, spent, uh, this is probably the most interesting one, he spent $260,000 on a dinosaur skull uh, that had to be returned to the Mongolian government because it was found out that it was stolen. But who among us hasn't done that? Um, and so, you know, Similar stories can be told of Johnny Depp or Mike Tyson or whoever you want to name a celebrity or sports figure that that's happened to. But the point is this, it might seem outlandish, but we all have discretionary income that if we're not careful, can tell a story about us that we don't want to tell. You might not be buying castles and quarter million dollar dinosaur skulls. But how many TV channels do you pay for that you don't watch? How much do you spend on a model phone that you don't really need? Food you don't eat? Or a make or model or car that you don't really need? It's not that you can't have these things. But let's be honest about what they are. They're discretionary spending. They're discretionary income. And what Jesus is speaking about in here is beyond living expenses, discretionary income, what do you do with it, and what is the story that it tells about you? I don't know where the line is between prudent and wise and greedy and foolish, but what Jesus is telling here is somewhere there's a line. Somewhere there's a line between being wise and becoming a greedy fool. A bishop right. Uh, Orville or, and Wilbur's father uh, was a pastor. Uh, Wright Brothers, their father was a pastor. Uh, Bishop Wright, uh, he said, uh, quoted in the book by David McCullough, the Wright Brothers, uh, he said, all the money anyone needs is just enough to prevent one from being a burden to others. And so that's one perspective. But be careful that your money doesn't tell the story of being a greedy fool. The second story that nobody can might tell is not a greedy fool, but a fearful warrior. Uh, maybe your money doesn't tell the story of a greedy fool, but be careful, it might be telling the story of a fearful warrior. But Jesus goes on in Luke chapter 12, verse 22, and he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on, for life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, they neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, 
How much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things. And your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Jesus warns his followers against being fearful and worrying. He warns them against anxiety. This is a story of a fearful warrior. And some people, money, lawyer, relate to money, can tell the story of a fearful warrior. We get anxious about it. We worry about it. If greed is the story of always wanting more, then fear is the story of always being afraid of not having enough. Fear is always being afraid that you're going to lose what you have and always being anxious about having enough money. It's interesting, this previous parable that Jesus told is about discretionary money. This one is about living expenses, the needs of life, worrying about what you're going to eat, what you're going to wear. And Jesus says, don't get anxious about that. Don't worry about that. Fear often results in what I call a scarcity mentality. A scarcity mentality. And I think maybe that many of us are more subject to a scarcity mentality than we are even a greed mentality. They're kind of two sides of the same coin. But I think many of us would say, oh, I'm not greedy. You know, I, I can say when enough is enough. And, and I, I don't want, you know, and all, none of us think we're greedy, right? Uh, we just compare ourselves to someone else and go, well, they're greedy. I'm not greedy. I don't have what they have, so I'm not greedy. Like, like no. But I wonder about the scarcity mentality. That do we operate sometimes out of fear of losing things? And so we try and hoard things. We try and hold on to them tightly and not let them go because we think that the resources are scarce. Planning and saving can be greedy and sinful at some point, but planning and saving can also be the result of operating out of fear. Not that planning and saving are wrong. What I'm saying is if we get to the point where we hold things so tightly that we never let go of them, we never share them, then we get to a place where we might be telling a story that we don't really want to tell. Jesus tells his followers not to be anxious about the things they need. Handle your discretionary money with an eye to God and others, and don't be anxious about the provision of your daily needs, but take them to God. Jesus assures them in his words by these examples that God is able to take care of their daily needs, just like he takes care of the birds of the air and the flowers of the field. I wonder if sometimes in New England, in our area of the country, if especially we operate many times out of a scarcity mentality, like God's going to run out of what he can give to us and what he can provide for us. It's always interesting to look at what studies find about people's giving and charitable giving habits, right? And it's no surprise, as I shared with you, the last 50, 60 years, almost every study has shown the same thing. And that is that oftentimes, study after study will bring out that the people that have the least give the most. People that have the most give the least when it comes to percentage-wise of giving. Um, if, you, if I had to ask you what, um, what city or state do you think gives the most percentage-wise in the country? 
percent of discretionary income, not talking about living expenses, after living expenses, which city in the country gives the most percentage-wise of their discretionary income? And guess? No, that's tough. I want to say, to give me the state, get the state right. Mississippi, Nebraska, Mississippi is often high up there on the state, and it is one of the highest ones. It, the list is topped, it's skewed, kind of a trick question, because Utah tops the list, but Salt Lake City, apparently the Mormons have a very high uh, tithing uh, uh, belief. So Utah tops the list. But after Salt Lake City, it's Memphis and Birmingham, and then Mississippi's up there too. These ones that have the least amount of resources, uh, Salt Lake gives 9% of discretionary income on average, Memphis 7.2%, and Birmingham, 7.1% of discretionary income they give away, and they're generous with. The bottom of the list, you want to know? Yeah, <laughs> Rounding out the very bottom of the list with 2.8%, Providence, Rhode Island. Uh, just above them, Boston, Massachusetts, 2.9%. And just above that, Hartford, Connecticut, three point. Now, this isn't a Christian survey. This isn't like tithing. This isn't like measuring. This is people who give to help other people in need. And the surveys say, time after time after time, that the people that can give, that have the least, give the most, and the people that have the most give the least. Uh, this article found out that households with incomes of fifty to seventy-five thousand dollars. Households of incomes of fifty to seventy-five thousand dollars donate on average seven point six of their discretionary income. That's compared with four percent of those with incomes of two hundred thousand dollars or more. So, people that can have the most give the least percentage-wise, and people that have the least give the most. And I bring this up for this because you don't have to be wealthy. Um, this isn't this isn't a strike against that. We can all be generous. So you have some of the poorest states in the country, some of the poorest cities in the country are the most generous. And this should challenge us. But I bring this up because of this, because I wonder if it's not because we live with a scarcity mentality. I don't know. I mean, it, it, it certainly could be greed. I haven't done the studies. There's certainly a mode of greed that certainly exists, and you get a certain amount, and you, and you, you want to keep it, and, and, you, and you get greedy for things. Some of the surveys that have done this and tried to get at why this is the case, um, part of it is because many wealthy people don't live around many poor people and you disconnect, but when you put wealthy people around poorer people, guess what happens? The wealthy people start giving more when you rub shoulders and you're more in contact with them on a regular basis. Um, so there's a disconnect that often happens and a, a reinforcing effect with where you live and who you live around that often affects this. But the point is this, that I think sometimes we may be affected by a scarcity mentality. A scarcity mentality says, if I give this to you today to meet your need, I may not have enough for me tomorrow. Better for you to be hungry today than for both of us to be hungry tomorrow. And again, we have something here that seems to make maybe logical sense in the natural. It appears sound and logical. If I give you something today, then maybe we're both in need tomorrow. But what it doesn't do is it never takes God into account because we don't view things in the natural. 
we view things in the supernatural, when you take God into account, what we'd say is it changes it. The whole point is, when we take God into account, it changes it to maybe God has given me enough today for both of us to eat, and maybe, definitely according to Jesus, we can both trust God to provide for our needs tomorrow. But it's a different mentality. It's a different scoreboard. Jesus operates on a whole different scoreboard. When he puts this out to the rich man, he changes the scoreboard completely. He had amassed the most, and Jesus said, you're a fool. Happens with the widow's might. I won't go there with that story, but it happens with the widow's might. They have these guys dropping bags of money in the offering. Widow comes up, drops in two of the least valuable coins in that culture, and Jesus says she gave the most. The one who gave the least gave the most. Because it's this mentality of freedom, generosity, and trusting God. And that's really the third story that can be told. The third story that can be told is, the story, third story is the story of a faithful follower. What's the story you might tell? Greedy fool, fearful warrior, or faithful follower? Instead, seek his kingdom, and all these things will be added to you. <coughs> Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in heaven that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Faithful follower in this case. In this passage, Jesus says to let your money tell the story of worshiping God and loving others. Seek his kingdom, give to his kingdom, support the kingdom initiatives, the mission of God, and then be generous to others. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Now in this passage, Jesus is not saying you have to sell all, Jesus is not telling you you have to sell all you have and give it to the needy. Unless that is what he's telling you. Because sometimes he does say that to people. In fact, there's one very well-known story in the scripture where that's exactly where he said to someone. You want to follow me? Sell everything and give it to the poor. The Bible says that man walked away very sad because he had great wealth. Apparently, he wasn't willing to do it. But Jesus knew in that moment that's what was standing between that man and God. And if wealth stands between you and God, then Jesus will tell you it's not worth the trade-off. Give up the wealth and get right with God. That's not worth the trade-off. But in other times, there's another man, a wealthy man named Zacchaeus, and he goes to his house, and Zacchaeus you know, starts to follow Jesus, and Zacchaeus says, I'm going to give away half of everything I have, and if I cheated anyone, I'll pay them back. And what does Jesus say? Well, he doesn't say, well, what about the other half? You didn't give it all. That's not what he says. He says, salvation has come to this house. Because the possessions weren't standing in the way of Zacchaeus coming to God. So there are times where God's going to tell you, get rid of that, because that's standing in the way of you and me, and you need to just get rid of that. <coughs> but the bottom line is he's saying a faithful follower is generous to God's kingdom, is about God's kingdom purposes, and is generous to others around them, especially the needy. We need to regularly make sure we are not falling into telling a story of greedy or fearful warrior. And the way we do that is we use our money
for God's purposes and we're generous to people in need and around us. We use our money for God's purposes and mission. How does that, you know, what does that look like? Well, one simple way that looks like, Pastor Marvin, you just heard him a few minutes ago uh, talk about uh, the offering. We do that every week at Mount Hope. That is not a halftime break. That is not, uh, you know, that's not something just, to, let's get to what we really came here for. That's important. That is worship to God, what we do in that moment. And, uh, and you may do your giving online and, you know, through electronic things, and I do most of my giving through that, so I understand, you know, that many people don't necessarily, uh, you know, give on a Sunday morning. But that moment is a moment of worship whenever you do it. It's a moment of worship. It's a moment of saying, God, this is yours. God, we honor you. God, we, we give it to you. And, and that's what that moment is. And so we talk about, you know, whenever you hear Pastor Marvin or someone receive the offering, you usually hear this language. We're going to receive the Lord's tithes and our offerings. And maybe you haven't grown up in church, you're not familiar with that. Well, what's a, what's a tithe? What's an offering? Why do you use that language? Tithe is something that's talked about throughout the scripture, uh, uh, really from the beginning, right through the scriptures. Uh, tithe is talked about. And a tithe is a simple, it's, it's a literal translation, uh, you know, it means a tenth. And the best way I've ever explained is when Pastor Andy Stanley did this, he took out 10 of these, and the best way to explain a tithe is this. Every time God gives you 10 of these, you say, God, I can't even believe, first of all, thank you that you've given me 10 of these to manage, 10 of these to oversee, 10 of these to take care of. God, you've been so good to me. You've been so gracious to me. You've given me your reckless love. God, I'm going to invest one in your kingdom purposes. I'm going to take one. Every time God gives you 10 of these, you take one and say, God, I'm going to invest that in your kingdom. In fact, I'm going to give you the first one, God, before I spend it on anything else, because that's my trust. You gave it to me, and I'm going to give you one and invest in your kingdom and in your purposes and in your mission. And that's what a tithe is. Now, you might say, well, God, you have been so good to me. And, and God, you have loved me so much. And you've been so gracious to me. And you gave me nine of these to handle. Now, God, you should have another one. Now we're getting into offerings. Right? So the tithe was the tenth. And then, but, but God, this is all yours anyway. And so now I give an offering because Jay and Jackie Woodrow need to get to China. And other people need to get to other places, and we're going to make sure that they get there. We're going to make sure the gospel gets there. So I'm going to, we're going to give an offering to make sure that takes place. And then I have these eight here that God has still allowed me to handle. Now, here's the thing. Here's the thing. These eight, here's, here's where it often goes wrong. And here's where we get into greedy fool rather than faithful follower. These eight still belong to God. These eight, I am not an owner of, I am a manager of. See, that was the mistake of the rich man in the parable. My barn, my goods, my crops. You have never given away a dollar of your own. You have never donated a single dollar of your own. Because everything we have received, the Bible says we've received from God. We are stewards. It is on loan and we handle it for God. We're essentially money managers 
for God when anything comes your way. And he may give you a lot to manage, or he may give you a little to manage, but it doesn't matter. You're going to tell a story about how you manage it. And that's one way we give to God's kingdom. i got to give this money back to my kids. Um, <laughs> um, so investing in God's kingdom, tithing. Uh, if, if you want your advice uh, in addition to that, and for me, and, uh, from a billionaire maybe, uh, John D. Rockefeller Sr. said it this way. He said, I never would have been able to tithe the first million dollars I ever made if I had not tithed my first salary, which was $1.50 a week. Um, so uh, that's, and it's getting in that habit and getting in that, that, that process of doing that is helpful. And I've talked about that before, uh, the importance of going into that. But so investing in God's kingdom, giving that to the Lord, but then also being generous to people in need. That's the other part. Being generous to people in need. Proverbs says a generous man will prosper. He who refreshes others will himself be refreshed. A generous man will be blessed, for he shares his food with the poor. If anyone should be generous, it should be followers of Jesus. Not because we have so much, but because we've been given so much. And we know the God who owns it all. We know the God who owns it all. God is enough, and he's able to provide for us. So what is the story you want your money to tell? What is the story you want your money to tell about your life? A greedy fool, a fearful warrior, or a faithful follower? At the end of your life, regardless of how much you have or how little you have, the way you handle your money will tell a story about you. It's not about how much you have or don't have, it's about your heart. It would be a tragedy if at the end of it all, the story our money tells about us is that we were really good at amassing wealth, but really poor at worshiping God with it. The story we want our money to tell is a story about who God is. And it's going to tell a story about that one way or the other. Just like other aspects of our faith, we can be tempted to contract out our giving and our generosity. We can think, well, that's someone else is going to do it. When I can afford it, I'll do it. When it comes up, I'll do it. But it doesn't matter how much or how little. We're going to tell a story about how we handle money. We have blind spots in our lives when it comes to money. As we come to close out this service, and uh, it's our music ministry to return, um, we all need to examine our blind spots. Because when I came, I told you, I confessed one in the beginning. When I came to that parable this week and I started looking at it, it was a blind spot for me. I started looking at that and I'm like, wait a second, what this guy's doing makes sense. So what is it about it? Because it seems to make sense to me that he would plan for the future, provide for the future. Sometimes we have blind spots. And I think especially with money, when it comes to the world we live in, they're trying to make, there's a mentality that's given to us and we need to ask the Holy Spirit, God, help me to see my blind spots. Are there places we think we are being prudent, but we're really, really being greedy? Are there places we think we are being careful, but we're really just afraid about tomorrow? Are we ignoring someone else's need today in order to provide for our wants tomorrow? Are we neglecting someone's today need because of our tomorrow wants? 
have we classified wants as needs and thereby restricted what God wants to do through us? When is the last time I gave sacrificially? When is the last time it cost you something? When is the last time you had to say no to something you wanted so that you could say yes to something someone else needed? What would it take for you to get to the point where you were tithing? What story will your money tell? Greedy fool, fearful warrior, or faithful follower? The way you and I handle money will tell a story. Not many people have uh, checkbooks anymore, check registers, debit cards, or your phone, or however you handle money. The challenge this week is every dollar you spend, what is the story it tells about you and me? And if someone were to go through your bank statements, and someday someone will, probably your kids or someone you love after you pass and gone because you don't get to take it with you. So they're going to go through your bank statement. They're going to see where you spent money, what you did, how you handled money. What story will it tell about you? If you're a Christian, will it tell a story that you worship God and more generous to others? Will it tell a story of being a faithful follower of God with your money? Because the bottom line is it's all his anyways. Would you stand and respond to the Lord and worship it? The response to this message is simple. If you're a Christian, then I ask you to search your heart and be willing to say to God, I lay it all on the altar before you. An altar is a place where you come and make an offering. And an offering is, Lord, it's all yours. And so maybe you want to come and you need to come and you need to recommit yourself and everything God puts in your possession to his purposes. And the response is when you leave these doors today, every dollar you hang on this week, what story does it tell? Will it tell a story about glorifying and honoring God, loving and living for him? We'll have some elders available on the side of the uh, altar if you want someone to pray with you you can come and kneel and pray we're all going to respond to God's word and ask the Holy Spirit to speak to us as we sing and remember that 